Hey everyone, Tyler here. Before you listen to this episode, I just wanted to prep you for some issues that arose when we were putting it together. So we recorded this when we were getting our bearings in the early days, and this was Doc's first time being the host. As this was my first time in the passenger seat, I made a pretty stupid mistake and didn't check which microphone I was using to record. So instead of my normal microphone coming through, my voice ended up coming through a really shitty webcam mic. Now, as you might imagine, the audio on my end for this for this particular episode is um, not too good. So we just wanted to apologize to you for that. Always remember, kids, check your inputs and your outputs when you're recording and make sure that your audio quality sounds good before you finalize stuff. Anyway, with that in mind, Doc's put together a pretty fun episode here. So let's jump in. Welcome to Codex Wax, the video game history podcast. My name is Dax, I am your host. And I'm Tyler, your co-host. This is a podcast about video game history. Each episode, we tell a story about one aspect of video game history. In this episode, I tell a story and Tyler comes along as my Watson, so to say, to ask questions and to help you and me and him comprehend what's going on. Yes, so we're actually we're reversing roles this week. I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, I get to be in the passenger seat for once, and I'm pretty excited to hear what you're going to talk about. Yeah, we'll see. Um, but first, how are you? Is everything cool? Yeah, that's what I was just going to ask you. Everything's good. Um, I'm just, uh, those of you who don't know a lot about me, I'm presently in my last year of grad school, and so I'm trying to finish a dissertation. Ooh, so exciting. Yeah. I mean, as exciting as um, dissertation work is, <laughs> dissertation work is, and looking at data sets about congressional bills, right? Ooh, oh boy, real man. rager of a Friday night. That gets your heart <laughs> pumping, right? Yeah, I've been playing some games though. Um, lately, I beat Dark Souls One since nice. the last episode. Congratulations! The last boss is easy. You did a the good last job. Last boss there. is way easy. Thank you. Well, you know, you just dump a bunch of points into strength and endurance and vitality and get a big sword and you can just beat that whole game pretty easily yeah. well i mean dark souls easily i guess yeah but you 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 did the easy strength uh harvel's armor build that's that's a good way to do it yeah i was i you know i think a lot of people think that harvel's armor is cheating but i maybe it is i don't know it's it's in the game you can it's get in it the you game can... you can get it it's fine yeah but Dark Souls 2, I started Dark Souls 2, and it feels a lot smoother. I can see why maybe people had issues with it, but... Yeah, people like hate it. it. They despise the game. And yeah, uh, it's it's understandable, because it's really janky all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. While yeah. Dark Souls 1 felt really condensed. Is this going to be our thing? Are we going to talk about Dark Souls in every <laughs> intro? And then just well, it's, just, it's topical right now. Uh, I'm it also is. playing... Dr- Dragon Ball Z Kakarot, which nice. uh, is totally a campy version of watching the DBZ show and instead you're playing it. And it, it goes through the entire story, right? But only from the DBZ start. So yeah, after... it doesn't it doesn't go through Dragon Ball. Okay, that would be cool. You're right. correct. So what do you got for me today, man? Okay, 
So I thought about what to talk about. And until now, we have only talked about self-made computer game developers or people that came in from other areas of practice and could use their skill in the area of um, video game design. Okay, that's true. Nowadays, video games have become such a huge part of culture that nowadays it actually has become its own field of study. And so if you dream of becoming a um, video game designer, you can actually apply to a video game school and learn how to become a video game designer. And today we are going to look at someone that actually took that path and will, by doing that, create something that all of us know and love, um, which is a great video game that we'll reveal later on, of course. So you're saying that we're going to talk about a person, just to review, who went to school to learn how to make video games instead of um, you know, just some scruffy bunch of kids making video games. Yeah, like those, those naughty, guy, naughty Dog Boys from mm -hmm. last episode that just started making games and all of a sudden okay. were rich develop developers. Yeah. So the person we'll talk about is called Kimberly Swift. She's going to be the protagonist. Okay. And it's kind of the late 90s. She's in her first year of high school, junior year. And she knows that she wants to develop computer games. But many of us had the idea of, I want to be, I want to be a computer game designer. I want to turn out to, to make games when I'm grown up. She had the same problem that we had, that she didn't know where to start, how to do it. So she started, of course, as many young adults, that don't know what to do with their lives, they start to talk to someone that they trust, which for her with her parents, and especially her dad. And her dad had a co-worker that told him about a school close to her, which is DigiPen in Redmond, Washington. DigiPen? DigiPen, yeah. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, maybe DigiPen, or it's like okay. Digi as in digital, and Pen yeah. as the pen you use to write. I have a quick question. Yes. Uh, what Did you say what year this was? This is in the late 90s. I don't know the exact okay. year. The interviews are unclear about it. It must be something like 99 or 98. Okay. Yes. It's kind of a digital um, technical institute um, that specializes in teaching the art of creating computer games. So in preparation to apply to the school, Kimberly decided to take two semesters of C++ courses, which is a programming language. So she could prepare to apply to the school and get a better chance of getting into the school, and she actually got into DigiPen's RTIS program, which means real-time interactive simulation, which according to Kimberly was just some fancy words for computer science that the school used. Right. Do you know how, do you know C++? I have to learn C++ in my university. It's rather difficult, and I'm, on, I'm only starting myself, and it's a very, very frustrating process. So learning a year of C++ in high school must also be a very frustrating progress that she went through. I would imagine I have, so not only you know some programming languages, but some of the people in our community know programming languages. And I'm always astonished because it is like a language, right? Yeah. Like, so this is, I don't know that this is necessarily comparable, but when I run statistical analyses, I have to write up like a chain of commands and they all have to be executed in a certain order. And sometimes even using something as simple as like my program Stata um, is a little mind-boggling to me. So I think that people who can learn programming languages are, are, are impressive to me, at least. Just even from my little dip, my toe, you know, dipping my toes into that yeah. water just a little bit. Yeah, I think it's a 
getting someone that can teach you well and learning um, most importantly, the strategies how to program because you can't solve the huge problem. You always have to break it down into smaller problems. And mostly if you learn programming, you don't learn the languages, but you learn problem solving. So yeah, it's the year 2002. She got into DigiPen Technical Institute and to her surprise, the amount of computer science knowledge she learned in those two semesters in high school were easily surpassed by the density of knowledge that was poured into her by DigiPen within the first few weeks. So I, I don't know if you know that from university when you started out, but I know the feeling like you come from high school, you go into university and they just smack you in the face with oh, how yeah. fast you got to learn, mm -hmm. especially in the first year. And I think what was interesting to me to in undergrad and then even to a greater extent in grad school for me was just how much self-directed, more self-directed it is. So absolutely. Like people don't care if you like no. fail out of their class. Like, why would they? You're just one less person that they have to grade, and and so yeah, it's they can throw an overwhelming amount of information at you, and it's up to you to to absorb it, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Nobody bothers with you, and if you don't get your knowledge, nobody will give it to you. Right. When asked in a few interviews if she was already fiddling with computer games back then at that starting point of um, university, she kind of says, quote, not particularly. I was mainly trying to keep my head above water, really, with all of the schoolwork. I had a few ideas here and there, though. Whenever our games team would start to figure out what we were going to do for our project, we would all pitch in various ideas, end of quote. So what we hear there that they have kind of development teams in um, in the school they, they went to. And it kind of worked like this. The entire curriculum was built around the idea that they would build these, have these groups over the entire course of the program, which would be four years. And in these groups, they would have to create one game each year. Oh, okay. Yeah. So she was part of a group that was called, they had a name for themselves, and they were called Nuclear Monkey Software. Okay. They had kind of a, like a logo that looks like a nuclear hazard sign, but there's a little monkey in the middle that throws something that kind of seems to look like poop. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird little logo and it has a lot of animals on it. Well, you know, that's like, uh, I don't know what, what the hell was up with like the early 2000s and this weird obsession with monkeys that would throw poop. I don't, it was like, I don't know if you experienced this in Germany. But a great monkey poop beckoning. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I remember like walking into Hot Topic and there was just all this stuff about monkeys flinging shit. And I don't I don't know why that was funny at the time, but there was definitely a, a very brief period in culture where that was like a thing. So I'm not surprised given that it came out of that time period. Yeah, also, maybe that was a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Fun fact, I, I think I read somewhere that monkeys don't do that in um like normal life, they don't just randomly pick up shit and throw it. It's like a captivity thing when they can't express themselves. Yeah, I think um, humans do that too when kept in cages for too long. Yes. Well, because, you, yeah, that's that's an interesting topic. That's a nice dark, <laughs> that's a nice dark path that we just treaded. So. Awesome. Do, shall, we, shall we dig deeper or, or go on with nuclear monkey software? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well. Okay, let's, let's continue. So they have this group. It's a bunch of programmers. They are all students. And you, you can still find the documentation 
from back in the day. They kind of had a little website they made themselves. They probably had to do some marketing courses too, where they probably had to build this website to kind of promote their um, studio as if it was a real studio, stuff like that. And it also exists with all of the documentation of the games they build. It's kind of funny. So this is kind of the moment where we'll once read all of the names of the team, because it's kind of important to mention that it was not just Kimberly Swift that will have done the games that we talk about, but it's an, a team of several people that will stick with her for the entire time. Right. So the team consisted of Kimberly Swift, Kim Swift. She was producer and programmer. Garrett Rickey, designer and programmer. Dave Kircher, tech director and programmer. Jeep Barnett, product manager and programmer. Realm Lovejoy, she was an artist. Scott Clintworth, also an artist. And Paul Graham, also an artist. Because at DigiPen, you could also learn the design video games. So yeah, that's the team. That's what Nuclear Monkey Software consisted of. And on their homepage, they kind of wrote an introduction to themselves. That kind of says a lot about what it must have felt to be at that school at that time with those people. Let's quote. Cool. Nuclear Monkey Software, founded in 2002, started as a small team of seven humble programmers and one crazy person. Previous projects such as Gun Fu, Disco of Crime, and Desert Derby, Sexiness Run Rampant, brought joy to thousands. Today, it is even smaller, distilled to four core programmers. They are also recently joined by four artists who appear to be bizarro reflections of the programmers. Does this not remind you of the episode when Superman and Bizarro team up to defeat the Green Squid? If it does not, then you are probably a Green Squid in need of defeat from the explosive fusion of video game developing death. But wait your turn. They must first focus on their powers on Nabacular Drop. Okay, the last two words made no sense. Narbacular drop. That is the name of their final project that will be highly important for this story. So that was so cringy. <laughs> that was so cringy. <laughs> it is super cringy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was going to ask, can you repeat Dave's name for me? Dave, Dave Kiri? Kirche. Uh, I say it the German way. I okay. think he, he must have, like, it's it's a C-H, so you probably would say Kirche. Okay. I don't know. It's okay. K-I-R-C-H-E-R. Okay. Um, I feel like I've heard German this guy's name before, but I, anyway, it's fine. Could be. He's in a company, you know. Okay, so Nabacular Drop, Nabacular Drop is the game that would be their final project. And these different projects that they were given always revolved around different stages of game development skill they had acquired. So the first, in the freshman year, they had to build a text-based game. And it got more and more complicated as the years passed, and their skill increased. So there's one game they did in their pre-senior year, one year before they had to do Nabacular Drop, the final game they did. And they kind of, they, they made a little box cover for it with kind of a description of what the game is about. And it, it looks pretty hilarious and about as cringy as what I just read you. Maybe a, a little bit worse. So let's get into that. It says, Desert Derby, sexiness run rampant. The Indian Racing Corporation is using nanites to turn fun-loving racing hobbyists into wholesale sand. The only way to survive is to win. Fight for your right to not be turned into grey goo. Race for glory on the planet's center and blast your rivals with a full 360-degree plasma turret 
speed your way through gnarly tracks created by the Animas team. Take on up to 15 of your friends, build and customize your own tracks and terrain. Original soundtrack by Hip Hop Lords of Arabia. And much more. Wow. I would play the shit out of that game. <laughs> it sounds kind of fun, doesn't it? Yeah, like it a, sounds like great. Free roaming Mario Kart racing game. What year did this come out? It, it was never published. You can't even download oh. it on the page. There's like two screenshots on the on the page. And the thing is that, I'll skip ahead a bit, um, this DigiPen kept all the rights to all the games created within the school. So it's rather difficult to get the games. That makes sense. Um, it's really weird how universities do that. Um, I think technically, I think technically when I publish my dissertation, my... Like, my parent university owns it, as weird as that is. That's very weird, isn't it? But I would have to look into the legality of that. I'm not sure. Yeah, but that's Digipen does it the same way. And that's I, I guess that's why you don't have access to many of the games that they created anymore. Maybe they were also terrible. You Could be. Know, maybe they... <laughs> but I, I, I really think that this captures the the entire atmosphere that their um, projects must have had, also where they created them, because you must imagine under what enormous pressure they must have been uh, at the time, because they were having they needed to progress in video game school, and the only place that they were able to completely goof off was inside of these projects because they had no, nothing else. They had if if you're at university at that time, you don't have time for any, and I think it's it's a pretty hilarious way to vent your stress <laughs> yeah i was thinking when you were saying that it, it would it would be a good outlet right like an outlet for all of your um your frustrations in in school yes i think so too so yeah the school years pass nuclear monkey software completes the projects they were required to make and kimberly swift um reaches senior year together with her team and they have to come up with their final project and the general topic of it is build a 3D application that has physics. That's it. Okay. So it can be anything as long as it has physics. Yeah. Okay. And this is where we stumble across how they pick their final project. And I think this is where we, you will know what game we will talk about. We'll see. <laughs> Kimberly first says, um, Kimberly says in a few interviews that the main principle of choosing a project was one thing, and that is they need jobs. And Kimberly Swift just said, quote, the impending doom of our student loans was hanging over our heads and we wanted to eat. And she actually uses um, this comparison in several separate interviews and talks she does a few times. And it, I think it very well illustrates the dread they must have felt that was building up due to their student loans that they had to take out and oh, yeah. finance studying. And it was kind of accumulating over their heads like a damn clear sword. I guess I guess you can relate better than I. Um, well, as yeah, from the same country. I um, well, see, you've got things a bit easier over there in Germany. Um, I I might have said this to you before, but if I had all the money that I had out in loans right now, I could buy a really nice house just about anywhere in the country. Like if all that debt was money I had, I could just go buy a really nice house with it. That's a lot of debt, man. Why aren't millennials buying houses? They're destroying the economy. Oh, I don't know, because I can't afford one, like, ever. I saw something on Twitter one day, and it was like, something. it was something, and it was like, I realized that someday I'll have a house 
when my parents die. <laughs> <laughs> so exactly this dilemma <laughs> is, is why her whole motivation is we just we just gotta get hired by someone after this, or we yeah. just starve on the street. It's just gonna happen. So then he jumps. So even before Funny Year started, they started planning to kind of get ahead of the game. She kind of talks about that in the former years, they were always too late for their projects and they never started on time and it always got too close. And they were like, if we do this now, we will literally starve. Mm -hmm. we, gotta, we gotta make this work. They started pitching ideas. And the first thing that they came across was the main mechanic of the game. And because one of the programmers, Dave Kircher, uh, we talked about before, mm -hmm. um, he had been working about this game mechanic in a 3D environment that used portals. So you could you you could put a portal on one wall and another wall and you could look into the other and out the other. Um, and I mean, this obviously reveals where this is going. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so there, this is the game portal, is what you're telling yes. me. Yes. But but they will not design portal. They design something else. Interesting. That will lead, that will lead up to portal. Okay. Um, which makes this more interesting. So they kind of come up to with the idea of creating this environmental puzzle in which you have to use these portals to solve the puzzle. So it's already pretty close to what portal will actually be later on. The concept is still not completely worked out because at that moment they could only see through the portals. There was no kind of physics going on that they could use with them or they couldn't move through them and stuff like that. And they also came across a few big disadvantages they had as video game developers that they had to kind of get rid of or kind of cancel out. And that was, they lacked a lot of resources they didn't have any money to spend on development as all the other developers we've got to know had. Lots of them, they started out with no money often, but later on they always had funding they could throw into neat fancy machines that basically made their games work much better. Right. And they also, they were a small team of workers and they weren't getting paid. They actually had to pay the school to do work. So they were getting a negative income. What? So they had to pay the school to use their facilities? They had to pay student loans. Oh, oh, they're still in school. I'm sorry. Yes. This is this is still the school process. This is their final project for school. Okay. And they have to do this to graduate. Okay, I see now. And they also they lack expertise. They have no idea how to do this, and they only have this main concept. They kind of have to stick with, and they kind of have to make it work to make it something special to not starve. This is still the idea. We got to make money. We got to make this special. But they also think that they had kind of a few advantages, and that is. First, if you're as free as they were in doing anything you want, you, you have no publisher breathing down your neck. Nobody's going to force any demographic on you, any kind of design you have to include. You don't have to be funny if you don't want to be funny. You don't have to fill any kind of niche. And that kind of helped them a lot. Yeah, it seems like they had creative freedom in that regard. Kimberly said something along the lines of, we would not be forced to create a game entirely focused around the demographic of 12-year-old girls that like to play volleyball. But if you had a great idea for that demographic, nobody would stop you from doing it. Right, right. She also added an interesting advantage that they had in creating what would be called Nabacular Drop. That's the game that they are designing with the portals. Mm -hmm. And that is that they had what she called video game awareness. And she said, quote, even though you are a student, being a young is actually on your side. You have quite a bit of video game awareness just because you have grown up in an age where video games are prevalent and popular source of entertainment. You have almost as much video game awareness as a lot of people in the industry. How interesting. I never thought about this before. So yeah, 
you would have a different perspective than someone who grew up previous to video games being ingrained into popular culture. Absolutely. And that, that might give you, well, I mean, she just said it, but that might give you advantages that you might have over someone else. That's pretty cool. Huh, I had never thought about that before. And that is absolutely why they also thought that this was a good idea because they they thought, I think we can make this work. But the biggest reason they thought that the portal idea was a good idea, and I think this is interesting, is that innovation is hyper cheap, especially if you're a student. She says innovation is low cost as an independent because you have nothing to lose. The worst case scenario is you get a bad grade, you still kind of graduate, but there isn't a multi-million dollar franchise behind what you're doing. So if you mess this mechanic up, is this main mechanic of the game, it's fine. And also you're competing against nobody if you have something new. And the portal idea was entirely new. And they were aware of that because they had video game awareness. That's, a, that's interesting to think, to think about the pressure that, that companies put onto developers to make games in a certain way. Um, you know, I'm thinking about like, I don't know, World of Warcraft. I used to play a lot of WoW. And the core idea of World of Warcraft is pretty cool, and at least it was for the time, but over time, I feel like there have been pressures from Activision Blizzard to make the game more grindy, to make the game more of a chase uh, than it used to be to keep subscriber numbers up. And so, I mean, of course, this isn't a one-to-one example, but the idea that you don't have the pressure from that company and it gives you the ability to innovate, I could see, would be very useful. I mean, we talked about the Naughty Dog guys, not to keep going back to the last episode, uh, but there were times when those guys wanted to make a specific game and could not, or had pressure. Because their publishers wouldn't let them. They were, right. or, or that one time when the Naughty Dog guys got this comedian from their publishers to make mm-hmm. their game funny, and they were like, oh, what the fuck? Why do we have to do this? Exactly. Um, that, I, that must be um, a terrible feeling. So yeah, she says, if you innovate, you don't have to compete. You're on your own in the direction you're going. And that's kind of how they felt about this is how we're going to make money. This is how we're going to stand out. This is how we're going to get hired and paid for what we're doing. Um, The combination of all of these thoughts kind of led up to the situation where they went like, okay, we got to make this game. It's going to be about portals. It's going to be just about that. And we're going to make it work. And we're going to get hired and it's going to be fine. So they stuck with that idea, and they kind of had to come up with a name for it. And we heard it a few times already, a snapbacular drop, and you're like, this doesn't mean anything. And Kimberly says that one of her colleagues came up with it, with the main idea of, if you Google that name, nothing else should come up. (laughs) That's the whole concept of the name, which is the case. If you Google snapbacular drop, nothing will come up except for Portal, because those two are intertwined, as you will see. They stuck with snapbacular drop, and after choosing their core principle, kind of had to figure out what was fun about those portals. Because um, as we heard before, it's important to figure out where the first fun of your game is. And in an interview, Kimberly explains how if you develop a game, you got to fiddle around with your core mechanic a lot, like iterate through it over and over again until you figure out what's fun about it and then stick to that. And as they went through the analysis of the mechanic, they kind of figured out a few neat applications they could add to the portal. And adding these multitude of applications to a single mechanic of the game is what Kimberly often refers to in many interviews as um, the Nintendo factor. Mm. And she, she explains this the following way by using Mario, actually. And that's in Mario, Mario has the ability to jump. 
which is a very simple mechanic. But you don't just do a single thing with jumping. You do numerous amounts of things. For example, you can jump onto things to defeat them, enemies. You can jump at boxes to open them up. You can get to a bigger height to um, get higher up, or you can even evade things. Hmm. And this is what they thought about when they were like, okay, we got to have this mechanic and it has to do a lot of things for us. It has to have that Nintendo factor that will make it fun because you can use it in so many different ways, which will make the game feel more dynamic. That's really interesting. And as you know, these portals will later turn out to have exactly that because mm -hmm. you can, in Portal, if you know the game, it's kind of a puzzle game where you have to set these portals onto walls and kind of you maybe have to move a box to a different area. Maybe you have to get across a, a gap and you can put a portal on your side and on the other side of the gap, then you can move through the portal and get through there. What's really cool is how they mess with the physics, not to cut ahead in our story here, but how you can really screw with physics in a way where you can throw yourself off a ledge and point a portal at the ground and use the momentum of your fall to rocket yourself out of a door and like the other portal. And so you can do these crazy jumps by using your own gravity and by using the physics of the game. And I just, I think it's really cool and really innovative. Yeah, and that's actually, I think that's the most fun part of it, that you can yeah. do these, keep your momentum of a fall and uh, kind of reuse it in another jump, which mm -hmm. makes the game sometimes incredibly fast paced, even yeah. though it's actually a pretty slow game. Mm -hmm. And they actually had that mechanic of keeping your momentum while falling through portals. That, that was implemented in a backyard drop already. They kind of made that work. And... I feel like there's no proof of that. I didn't read about it, but I think once they figured that out, they must have known this is something nice. This is fun. Because I remember when I played Portal for the first time uh, and I started figuring out how to use the momentum and the f weird physics you can do with the portals, it was super fun. So the general gist of mm, the back unit drop is like this. You kind of walk around in first-person perspective, kind of like a first-person shooter. But you don't have a gun. You kind of have this magic staff. It's kind of a fantasy setting. You're a little wizard. You start out in a cage and you have to save a princess. Because they were all about, we, we want the people that sees us to focus on our core mechanics. So let's make everything else as tropey as possible. So you right. don't even pay, a, pay attention to it. It's just a wizard, just a princess. You got to, there's lava, nothing you haven't seen a billion times in sure. your computer games. Also, probably pretty simple to to draw the textures. For. Right. Yeah. You don't. You you have a lot less to worry about then. There's a million different wizards that you could look at rather than I don't know some alien or something. And there's like boxes. You have to move onto buttons to open doors. You there's enemies that walk around that you have to get rid of to not die. Stuff like that. It's basically what Portal later on will have to. It, just that it, it looked like a dungeon crawler that's super dark all the time. Everything is brown or red. You see nothing really. It's you have to kind of you have to. Do you know these old dark games where you had to increase the um, the brightness the brightness of your screen to actually see what's going on? It yeah. kind of feels like this. I mean, it has an old school feel like that. One of the things I did for this is I actually played the game that they created, Nabacular Drop. It got finished, and you, that one you can still download for free. No way, that's awesome. And I think what kind of stands out, it already is a lot like Portal. A lot of the rooms look exactly as the puzzle rooms that you will see in Portal. There's like um, big parallels that you can see. And you can really see that they basically created the game already. But let's. how did they 
turn out to be Portal if they already had the game? That's the big question, right? Right. I'm curious how they got wrapped up with Valve. Yeah. It takes eight months to develop the game. And they weren't just doing that project. They had classes on the side. So they were still studying, still writing tests. They were not only concentrating on making their game. So this was a stressful eight months for them. And Kimberly once says that they basically never slept, then just did homework and coded all day. That's what they did. That's impressive, by the way. To be in your senior year of you know undergrad, you have other classes, and you are coding a game of Portal's Caliber in yes. eight months. That's nuts. While doing that, you constantly are reminded that if whatever you're doing right now doesn't work out, you wasted four years of your life and hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> into nothing. That's the mindset they go into. Yeah. I mean, I would argue, you know, from the other side of the podium that no knowledge acquisition is ever wasted. Yes. But also there's a small amount of privilege in saying something like that. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. But yeah, it's the um of course, the humanist approach is um, any learning is always good. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they, they still loved what they were doing. It's a, it's a pretty fun game. And I think it kind of reflects on how they, were, they still want to create something great. And they actually managed to do that. So, okay, right. let's remember where DigiPen Institute is. It's in Redmond, Washington. And mm -hmm. if you hop into a car in Redmond and you decide to drive to Bellevue, Washington, which isn't too far. You take about 15 minutes. What's in Bellevue, Washington? Valve headquarters is in Bellevue. Oh, yeah. okay. And did they send a representative to that final showcase thing that the school did? Of course they did. Was it Gabe Newell? No, it wasn't Gabe Newell. Of course it wasn't. That guy has other things to do, but it was some representative they sent. That guy has other things to do, like just swim in a bathtub. Yeah, that's the meme money. that goes around Gaben, right? Be a rich guy with a beard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like when the I like when the steam sales come around and they show him as like God and he has like the crown on and stuff and he's like grabbing people's yes. money out of their wallets. Oh mammon, let me give me your money. Papa <laughs> Gabe. <laughs> I need those Papa sales. Gabe, send me the games I don't play. <laughs> My library must increase. I know I'll never play them. I also the get deals. an achievement for having more games. <laughs> <laughs> I have to buy my... Thanks for those Steam cards. <laughs> Trade yeah, them with me friends. Buy more Team Fortress hats. <laughs> <laughs> okay, oh so my God. Valve sent a representative to kind of a showcase thing. DigiPen does every year for the senior students. They all kind of present their final projects in kind of a showcasing where they talk about what they did. They kind of do play testing, show some videos of it. And Nabaculous Drop had its own little thing there where the team of Nuclear Monkey Software could kind of show what they were doing. And Valve the representative that was there was pretty interested. They were like, oh, this is pretty neat. Have our card. That's how the um, conversation must have gone. They were like, oh, yeah, playing it cool. Oh, this is cool. Oh, this mm -hmm. you, know, you can give us a call if you want to. But what fascinated me more, imagine this situation. So eight months of video game development and this, this final day where you present it, and all of a sudden all this stress falls off of you. And you just sit with your friends with a kind of beer in a dorm room around this card. 
that Valve gave you. <laughs> you have nothing. You have no projects. You have nothing to do. Everything mm -hmm. is over. You you're a graduated video game designer, and you're like, how do we play this cool? <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh man the stress of that also i have a i have a question had had valve put out half-life at this point i, I wrote down had. what valve at that time what valve was okay it's the year is 2005 now so what was out half-life okay. one was out for about six years already so it was it was mm -hmm. a classic already half-life one pretty big what came out about one year yeah, before yeah. in 2004 was the source engine with half-life okay. 2 and basically the source engine was Valve's big new thing where they kind of introduced a ragdoll physic uh, where things could stumble around all of a sudden in the new game they put out, Half-Life 2. It, it was a really good game. I liked it a lot. But you must admit, it's also a huge mm -hmm. showcase for their new mechanic, for their new engine. It is. Even the, uh, the gun, the gravity gun, is a way to show off what Absolutely. their engine can do. I'm not saying that that was purposeful, but it yeah. feels that and way. What I also think a lot is when the representatives saw what was what the Nebacula drop game was doing with, with all the physics, and and they saw they they didn't see the game. They saw the cool mechanics with the portals. They were like, "This is neat," but they also saw like the things that are missing in the game are the things that we have, and they were like, "We gotta have this." I have no proof of this, but. Uh, if you look at Nebacular Drop, it looks like this is a neat game. It just misses the source engine. Yeah. How interesting. So yeah, and they already had Steam. Steam was a thing already. But if you remember Steam from the early days, it wasn't the Steam we know today. It wasn't the biggest game distribution right. platform. It was a shitty thing. It has this, it was not black, it was green or something. And you used it to play Counter-Strike mm -hmm. and Half-Life mods. That was it. Yeah. Like, I think I played a weird Half-Life zombie mod all day on it and played Counter-Strike 1.6 with my friends all the time. So I knew a guy who had Steam when I was younger. And and I was just like, why would I ever want that? Like, I remember thinking that. Like, what would I ever play on there? Those kind of mm -hmm. games aren't for me. And it wasn't until, I think, 2010 that I was forced to download steam to play i think one of the dawn of war games and i had to like ask my buddy i was like you know about steam is there anything i need to know about it and he's like no you just have to download it <laughs> but even then it was still like a, a a far cry from what it had originally started as if you look at the old ui of what yeah. steam was and steam day. kind of was trying out something new with being a digital distribution platform because that didn't exist at that time and they were one of the first people to do it i guess that's true because i was thinking about other i was thinking about other distribution platforms at that time and i th was thinking about battlenet but when i think about it battlenet wasn't a distribution nope. platform though it was only a place that you could play games so yeah that makes but sense. that's the way steam started out too it was a hub to play the games and to connect the people just as battlenet was but steam started right. early to also sell their games and their mods and their ideas on their platform so they sit in their dorm, they kind of think about how do we approach this? How do we approach this company that was legendary at that time already? Yeah. And here's a quote by Kimberly Swift of how they wanted to do it. Quote, maybe we can weasel our way into Valve to ask for advice, to ask advice on how to make our nebacular drop better because we were going to submit it to the IGF student showcase later in March. The IGF is the Independent Games Festival. It's 
still, still exists today. It's kind of a festival where indie developers can present their games. Quote goes on. So we were like, hey, these guys are pros. They know what they are doing. Let's tell them that they shall tell us how to not suck. So we took the game there and we were thinking we were just maybe going to show it to like two or three people. So they did that. And here's what actually happened. At Valve headquarters, not far, 15-minute drive from the campus that they were um, stationed at, they were brought into some kind of a meeting room. And into that meeting room, people kept piling up. Like there was more and more people coming in until the end there was... She says something like 20 people in that room. And even Gabe Newell was there. He came in last, what? sat down. He's like the president of Valve, if you don't know the name. And kind of a meme himself, as you might have experienced from our yeah. little jokes before. And he sat down and they started demoing the game for like 15 minutes. And at some point, Gabe stops them and asks, Hey, so what are you guys doing after you graduate? And she answers, Uh hopefully getting jobs so we can pay back our student loans and eat. She says it again. <laughs> and he said, okay, and grabbed a couple of people and left. And another 15 minutes pass, and they get escorted into another conference room where they get asked mm -hmm. on the spot, hey, so do you want jobs? What? <laughs> they were like, what? <laughs> Are you punking us? Is this yeah, a joke? Yeah. They, they couldn't believe them. They were like, yeah. this is insane. It's Gabe Newell in front of us. Oh. Yeah, I smell. <laughs> so yeah, they get picked up by Valve. The entire team, they pick, the entire team gets picked up. Entire, all of them. Hell yeah, dude. That's awesome. Because their only purpose is to recreate their game in the Source Engine. Okay. So during one summit, Kimberly is asked, why they didn't take the feedback that they got because Valve obviously told them like this is the shit we want this we hire yeah. you right and she was asked why they didn't build their own company as so many others did and here's a quote by her quote well part of that decision was man it's Valve I mean for us it was kind of just an obvious decision and we were really happy with the people there and they are amazingly smart the best people in the industry and as far as making our own companies for us it just seemed like a big step we are all really young and starting up our own business and it seemed really scary so they just went with i think they went with the sensible decision <laughs> i think that's completely sensible i'm imagining like my friend group from college and like imagining all of us getting a job at the same time at the same place with a company like Valve would be like oh, the yes. craziest thing, right? Yeah. That's really awesome. That's really cool. I think, I, I think especially that, that they were all hired, the entire team must mm -hmm. have been the biggest plus. So I was thinking, I, I don't know if we've ever talked about this before, but I have read before that Valve in present day and maybe had, had it like this as well, you can correct me on this because you're in charge here. Uh, but isn't it true that they have sort of like horizontal power sharing? And that while like Gabe is the president, that like they try to put everybody on the same level of importance at the company. And that like while that like I've read that like while that's really good, sometimes that keeps them from getting things done because it's like, oh, well, John didn't want to work on programming today. So he's going to work on this other thing. Therefore, you know, the programming never gets done. Now, I, I'm painting it like a bad thing, but I understand the horizontal structure of that. 
Kimberly Swift actually during a few interviews goes into that okay. and paints it as a positive thing because okay. she says, we have been working as a democratic group for a long time and it has caused us to make the right decisions, to make the right calls because we were also a group that was able to do that, that was self-driven a lot, but that was also able to take critique and okay. we were able to to create something and everybody could pitch in even if that wasn't their um, area of expertise right and this has caused the game to to flourish and valve has a completely parallel idea of how that works they do these so-called cabals like a like a witch's cabal where they mm -hmm. meet up in little groups and they for example they discuss level design and there's not just the level designers there there's everybody there they all go into and everybody can say what they, what's on their mind. Everybody can pitch in ideas. It's a completely democratic process. That's really cool. It seems like a good fit for them then. Absolutely. Um, and that's many, many people said for a long time, that's why Half-Life 3 is not getting done. Mm -hmm. and, um, is because they lost interest in it. And right. there's this urban myth about Valve that they have desks on wheels. So okay they can always leave their work area and go to another one by just pushing their desk away huh. and uh, kind of just decide by themselves what they want to do. So, so you say that's an urban myth. You're saying that that's not true. I, I just don't know it. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I, read, I read it a few times and a few Reddit threads like, Oh, that's one of, don't they have desk on wheels? And everybody was like, sure. yeah, I heard that too once. Um, well, that's how the internet works. Probably easy to figure out if that's the case. <laughs> Just ask, right? Just ask somebody. Yeah, yeah okay. Dr. Google. You can ask yeah. him again. Good old um, Professor Google. <laughs> okay. So yeah, thing is, they, sh they are hired to rebuild Nabacula Drop in the source engine. But the problem is they don't own any of it, so they can take none of the code. So they kind of go to DigiPen and ask them, yo, we were kind of hired to, to make this game again. What, what can we take? And they were like, uh, you can take nothing, none of the code, none of the characters. It all belongs to us, but I don't know. As long as it's not the same thing, you can just make it again. So suddenly, the decision to make it full of tropes turned out to be a really good one, didn't it? Because having, oh, no, we have to ditch the stereotypical wizard and princess is like, who fucking cares, right? <laughs> like, that's yes. great. So that turned out really well then. They had no characters that they were hyper-invested in. Maybe they did. Maybe I, I, they never talked about it in detail. Sure. Maybe there was one character that they super loved and wanted to include again. But then you think that they will, will turn out much smoother. Right, right. So does this mean that they have to remake the entire game from scratch? Clear answer is no. Because what they didn't have back then at DigiPen was an engine. They were not allowed to use engines. They had to build everything from scratch. And what they had now was a very powerful engine that was made by Valve, which is the source engine. Right, right. And the source engine, to, to put into perspective what an engine actually is, it basically is a collection of code, like a library, that you can pick from, but it also contains tools, it contains graphic assets. If you ever played the game Gary's Mod, Gary's Mod contains a lot of the assets that um, come with the source engine. Right. Um, so this just describes the art asset part of the source engine. But they actually had a really great base to grow their new remake of Nabacular Drop-On. So at Valve, they were given full power, the full power of the source engine, and they could use all of its power to create it. And the source engine was kind of like Valve's holy grail at the time. 
And this gave them a huge head start. We kind of talked about before that they took eight months to make Nebecula drop. Right. And to make it again as Portal took them just another eight months. Wow. The same amount of time. But if you look at the, like, this doesn't really put it into perspective if you don't see both of the games. But the way Portal looks like and the way Nebacular Drop looks like, that's worlds. That's three years of development more. You can't describe it. It's, and that's the difference that they are, the expertise that they got by making the game the first time, but also the difference the Source Engine made. Right. I can imagine that going from having to create everything from scratch to having this really powerful and refined engine to mess with would make those differences substantial. Absolutely. So one might think, well, the experienced Valve developers probably pitched in all the time and took over most of the work, but they actually didn't. They did nothing. The Nuclear Monkey software team did the entire work. It was seven people that were, that were hired. And of course, they had some kind of mentor from Valve to which they could go. They were like, oh, we don't get this about the source engine. How do we get this? How do we implement the portals? And they give them like little tips or... Mm-hmm where to look, but Kimberly Swift once states that Valve seems to be highly specific uh, and picky about the people they hire. And the people they hire always have to be self-driven. They have to self-learn. They kind of have to be able to build their own opinion by themselves, which kind of also supports their whole democratic system. I like that a lot. I mean, I think that I can understand why that might create issues within game development and like the future of the company and things like that. But I think just as a principle, I think that's a really good idea. And I think it gets shit on all the time on the internet because I think people are still mad that Half-Life 3 doesn't exist. But I think that as a philosophical idea, it's a good one. Yeah, Valve has kind of turned out to be the villain all of a sudden, right? Because they start out as the hero, as the the great saviors that bring us great games and that have have, have made the Half-Life series. But... All of a sudden, they get a lot of hate because they heave in a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I mean, isn't this the logical life cycle of all companies in one way or another? I guess. They start off and people like them. And then eventually, as they grow and get larger and larger, they start doing things that they have not only a wider audience who could have a disagreement with some of their practices, but also they're bringing in more revenue and that changes the idea of what they should be doing and restricts you in some way. And once you have to start pleasing shareholders and things like that, I understand why companies might I understand why companies might end up the way that they do. Yes, absolutely. So if you play in a bacular drop, the, the first thing that you you'll feel, I guess, is did someone make a shitty version of Portal? <laughs> is this what it is? Because maybe you right. maybe you don't know that Nebacular Drop came first and then turned into Portal. Because mm-hmm. all of these levels look hyper similar, like the puzzles for a few um, stages are actually very much the same. And the only di- difference is that it doesn't look as sleek as the source code makes it look. And as I said, Portal is like, it's shiny, everything is white and gray, and you live in this perfectly contrasted laboratory environment. I think that, I'm really thinking about this, and I think that without GLaDOS, which to those of you who don't know, in Portal there's a malevolent computer system called GLaDOS that is running tests on you. Yes. Does Portal even have the same charm without GLaDOS? Or is it just a physics puzzle game at that point? 
I think GLaDOS does a great job in telling the story as yeah. from a villainous perspective because GLaDOS is the only entity in the game that you talk to and you actually mm-hmm. talk back because you can. You're some kind of test subject that gets freed because GLaDOS is kind of addicted to testing. Right, the compulsion. Yeah, and actually this entire thing that then turned into Portal, Nabacular Drop, Valve loved it so much, the entire crew of Valve, that they actually implemented it into Half-Life canon. Mm-hmm. Because um, in the Half-Life universe, to explain the game a bit, you're kind of a scientist in a company called Black Mesa. Some test goes wrong, aliens invade outer dimensional aliens, and you kind of have to, to get away. And in Half-Life 2, you kind of wake up in the future, the world is going to shit, it's kind of alien dictatorship thing. And in a later stage of the source engine Half-Lives, there's a company mentioned called Aperture Science. And Aperture Science is the company in which Portal takes place. Correct. When they were previewing Half-Life 3 back in the day, um, you're getting ready to, this is a spoiler for where Half-Life 2 left off, you're getting ready to go on this like trek to go somewhere else, and then like the game ends very abruptly in a very like horrific like a very horrific event happens and it's kind of a cliffhanger. And so I remember reading that they were supposed to tie the games to Half-Life in Portal together because you were going to go find this ship that had been mentioned called the Borealis or something like that. And it was made by Aperture and they were going to even more strongly link the games because in both games, they like GLaDOS talks about like alludes to the aliens out there and says like, do you really want to be out there with them? Are you sure you want to go out into this world that's out there? And just like vaguely talks about like a combine and things like that, but never, it's never strongly like there other than some references. And I think at least the plan was in three that you were going to go to get some new time travel-y portal tech or something like that. And that was going to link the game's universe. Like, they're already in the same universe, but it was going to be more heavy-handed in that. At least from what I remember. Yeah, there's this one this one leaked script of Half-Life 3. Mm-hmm. And that script contains that. Right. It, um, there's very obvious references that you come to this ship and this portal technology on the Borealis goes completely crazy. But Portal 2 actually takes place a long time after the events of Half-Life 2. It's kind of the, the far future. And then you wake up again at some point and Portal 2 starts. Let's let's get it back to where we are. We, Valve loves it so much, it inserts Portal into the canon of Half-Life, gets part of it. And one big thing that they kind of made better in Portal, they kind of improved a lot of things from Nabacular Drop is the scaling. We talked about scaling of difficulty before. And Kimberly elaborated a bit more on that quote you gotta break your gameplay down into baby steps with nebacular drop we plunged the player into quickly in terms of how much they could actually do so we gave them access to both portals at the same time and that actually confused people quite a bit we did discourage quite a few players because they had no idea what was going on and the portal that is obviously fixed because first you get no portal gun, you just have the portals that kind of pop up in mm-hmm. intervals and you have to go through them. Then you get a portal gun that can only shoot one portal and the others is, the other one is fixed. Right. And then you get both of them. So you gradually step into it. And there's actually articles about how portal is an example of how gamification of learning can be achieved. How interesting. Because the, 
because like pedagogues and people that um, work in teaching say that it's a, a great example of how to teach people using computer games and one of the first good examples. So they said um, once they gave it baby steps, made it simpler, they saw how much happier people got, really started enjoying the game more because it wasn't as frustrating. Their bachelor job is freaking hard. That game is so difficult. I couldn't finish it. I got stuck. I was like, okay, what to do now? And I was stuck in a room with two portals. A million things were flying around. Mm -hmm. There was lava. There was lava turtles or something. <laughs> Goblins wanted to harass me. I don't know. Everything was dark. I had no clue. And the um, you can see the huge difference if it comes to difficulty scaling right. in Pope. And I think this is kind of interesting because we know a few very successful games that completely shit on that principle. They really don't care for scaling the difficulty for you. Let, let's get back to Dark Souls for a mm -hmm. second. It's just like, yo, dude, have a sword. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the whole Dark Souls story right there. Yo, dude, have a sword. Go fuck yourself. Dark Souls. <laughs> you die. <laughs> there was, there was one of my friends would come in when I was playing Dark Souls, and every time I would die, he would just write in all caps, Dark Souls, in my chat. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, okay, that's pretty much the game right there. I get it. Ducks, but that's totally fair. Well, I do think that that's a different kind of scaling, though. It, Absolutely. In it, yeah. Dark Souls is just like here's this open world, go and you figure it out. But for something like a game that has very distinct levels, I could see how that would be jarring to all of a sudden have it all thrown at you. Especially for a puzzle game, mm -hmm. because a puzzle game has to teach you how the puzzle works. Right. You can't just circumvent yeah. a puzzle and come back to it later. You're stuck on that puzzle. Like, yeah. like if you if, if somebody gave you a Rubik's cube and didn't tell you that you have to align the colors, what 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 are you supposed to do? That's a great way to think of it. Yeah. So Kim learned two other things at Valve that she talks about in great detail during a big talk she does after Portal released, and one is that she thinks a big reason for the success of Portal is what we talked about before is the development democracy. She thinks that that is the main reason Portal turned out great because weaknesses of the game were thrown out immediately. The second reason she thinks was the game turned out to be great was having colleagues that wanted to see her grow. Mm -hmm. And at Valve, she was surrounded by people that didn't put her down, but wanted her to improve as a human being. And they wanted to give her, the, give her the resources and her entire team the resources to create what they love and make it as good as possible. And that kind of wholesome, uplifting, positive perspective onto video game creation made, in her opinion, increase the quality of the game so much because all of the positive energy, to put it in an esoteric way, sure. kind of flowed into the game. That's really nice to hear. I mean, so often you hear yeah. about game companies and game developers, especially in the modern day, I guess back in the day too, going through these horrible crunches to meet these these deadlines that are really awful and, you know, everyone has this horrific and horrible time and then they get this really cool game out and you never hear anything about it or see anything about it. So it's nice to hear that at least somewhere in the game industry at some time, people were having the supportive colleagues who were helping to uplift them. That's heartening. Uh, I think so too. So as she said before, Portal turns out to be a huge success. It releases in 2007 and it gets released together in the Half-Life with, with Half-Life 2, Episode 2. So the last installment of the Half-Life series. 
Half-Life Alex came a few um, about half a year ago, but back then it would be the last Half-Life part for a long time. Yeah. And together with Half-Life 2, Episode 2 and Team Fortress 2 in the so-called orange box. And it sold about 4 million copies to this day, which is quite a lot. And it has spawned its own little pop culture niche because there's a, a few little memes going on in Portal about the cake is a lie mm -hmm. and the companion cube that is kind of your only friend in this laboratory, so you have to keep him safe. And I think in the Portal games, you find these notes by former testees, mm -hmm. test subjects, that kind of, they, that because at, at the end, you always have to throw the companion cube. It's kind of a cube you have to carry around right. into the lava. There's like sometimes you can get through the walls in a niche where you can obviously see that a, a test subject hid there from GLaDOS mm -hmm. and kept kept a companion cube with them, <laughs> scribbling little notes on the wall. My cube will never leave me. <laughs> me and my cube stay yeah. <laughs> It's kind of a running joke. <laughs> yeah, there were so many memes that spawned out of that game. Absolutely. And one big thing, and that is something that I also noticed about Portal the, for the first time, is that it was was one of the first games that was well received by people that were not close to gaming culture. And the greatest example of that, how the MoMA in New York, the Museum of Modern Art. I've been there. They, yeah, they entered 14 games into their permanent collection. And one of the games that were added to the permanent collection was Portal. Portal was added to it. And just to put it into, into perspective, what kind of games were added to that collection, there's like huge names on there. Pac-Man, Snake. Space Invaders, Donkey Kong, SimCity, Super Mario Brothers, The Legend of Zelda. Also, like things that were highly influential, like Minecraft, Grim Fandango, um, Street Fighter 2 is in the Animal Crossing, and also Portal. Huh. Uh, and it's still part of the permanent collection of the MoMA. And I also remember about Portal that one of the big newspapers, we kind of have a version of the American Times in, in Germany, which is called Die Zeit, which just means time times and it had a huge article about portal and usually that newspaper only writes about books and literature that's important or right. a huge play that goes on in the capital and you have to go there but they did this huge thing about portal and how it changed how how it can change how games and video games are perceived and i think that's very important especially from a german perspective at that time because what happened in germany in 2004 was something that you have sadly in America few uh, a bit more often, and that is um, a school shooting in Germany, a big one. It was our our first one actually in Erfurt. Oh, wow. It was a big school shooting in Germany, and what of course happened is it got connected to violent video games, of course, and especially to Counter Strike because the the person that did it played a lot of Counter Strike apparently. Oh, I remember this now. Yeah, yeah. And what kind of happened is video games weren't well received before, but then it was like mm, this is causing trouble for our youth, and mm -hmm. this and this all came back to. Counter-Strike has to be banned. Germany was pretty strict on banning games already, but they wanted to, to crank it up, to ban more games. And I also think that that was a big game changer because the company that put out Counter-Strike, Valve, uh, Counter-Strike was blamed for all of these things that happened to the German youth. Right. All of a sudden put out a game that has a completely peaceful approach to computer gaming, which is something that I greatly enjoy about portal that is a game that is completely about peaceful problem solving mm -hmm. it's it's not to go hippie now because i really enjoy the visceral feel 
of of course murdering millions of rats in Vermintide 2. <laughs> that's, that's I love that. But still, oh yeah, I I like it when games try to be critical about violence and also give you non-violent problem-solving solutions. I have two asides here. One in that thought, I think that's why I really liked Undertale. Oh, yeah. The whole point of Undertale is that you you don't have to kill anything. Absolutely. And in fact, if you do, the game makes you feel bad about it. Like forever. Yeah. Like it remembers anytime you do something bad and it keeps that information. Yeah. And I liked that a lot. But actually, I think maybe you and I have had this discussion before, but I wrote my senior thesis in college about how video games are regulated under the First Amendment in the, in the United States. And around that time, and maybe we'll talk about this in a future episode or something, Around the time that I was writing the paper, a Supreme Court case had come out where they had said that video games can't be regulated in the way that I had been like pushed in this particular case because they're art. Yes. And art falls under free expression and therefore falls under the First Amendment. And so the arguments that were being made in, in court at the time were very topical in saying, well, you know, you wouldn't regulate paintings in this way. You wouldn't regulate sculptures in this way. You wouldn't regulate books in this way. And so how are video games different? How is it any different than a story that you experience or a movie that you watch, right? And so that case, I think it was in 2012, helped them to solidify that video games are interactive art in that way. That was um, that is a thing that's different in Germany. As far as I know, they I don't know if they are yet considered art, but for a long time they have not been considered art, and that discussion has always been brushed off. And right. which is why video game censorship of violent games is one of the strictest in the world in Germany. Mm-hmm. Okay, they release Portal. It's a huge hit. Kimberly Swift stays at Valve for another five years. She helps developed the Left 4 Dead installments, one and two. She also, the, she put some work in on, she did put some work on a Half-Life 2, Episode 2, even though that came out at the same time as Portal 1. But then she left for another company, a development company called Airtight, which worked for Square Enix. Oh, okay. Where she developed another environmental puzzle game called, you might know it, Quantum conundrum it's kind of similar you kind of have to influence the physics of the level to change things around it has a few big similarities to portal and is is very fun as well and now she's or at least as far as i know she's at electronic arts she's a design director and for star wars battlefront 2 oh interesting okay boy that game got a lot of issues recently yeah (laughs) but i wonder go to go back to our previous um, discussion how much of that is the parent company pushing for further monetization of games in a way that detracts from the core fun of it yeah i think demonizing the workers and the developers on the designers might not be the correct approach to that yeah. yeah so i so what year was this 2010 maybe 2011 i used to frequent this gaming store in my hometown for those of you who don't know this about me, I used to play a ton of tabletop miniatures games. Like I would go to like tournaments and win prizes and, and things like that long ago. And so I remember I was there one day and there was this guy and he was doing a demo. He was going around to different board game uh, or uh, like local game stores and demoing this board game. And it was this innovative idea where you had your miniatures on the board. And this, is, this was kind of new at the time. You used an app 
to track each of your individual formations. So, like, imagine if you were playing, like, Warhammer, mm-hmm. but this particular unit of guys had a name, and you called them, like, I don't know, Ass Beater Squadron or whatever, <laughs> and then in your phone or, like, your tablet or whatever, it would have stats on those guys, and you would show them to your opponent, and then they would grow between battles. And so this was really innovative at the time, and I remember this game store owner really didn't like it, and he thought, well, I don't want to have to bring, you know, digital devices onto the tabletop, which I actually think now is how the industry's moving. But why am I telling you all this? Because that guy had worked on the design of Assassin's Creed, Mm -hmm. and he, I don't know what level of ranking that he had worked on, but while I'm demoing this game with him, I get to ask him all these questions about Assassin's Creed. And basically, to sum up a long story here, he told me that all the weird shit in Assassin's Creed where it's like, go collect all of the hidden flags that we that we hid around to get this achievement. That kind of padding was added later in the process as a way to artificially pump up the time that you'd spend on the game. And so that the original artistic direction had nothing to do with the weird collectibles. It's just that those things are typically added later on as a way to pad out the game. So instead of being a 20-hour game, suddenly it's a 50-hour game if you get all the collectibles, and you can then advertise that it has all these things to do. To reach some kind of quota that the company wants so they can say, this is that much content, so we ask that much money of it. That and, like, then it'll, you know, it's another selling point on it, that it's that much longer. It's a huge pile of bullshit. Uh, Okay. Yep. Neat story. I think, yeah, and I do think that a lot of, publishers do that because they are governed by economists and not by yes. developers so they might misunderstand what it's about and i think that is why valve turned out to to create games that they loved for a long time even though they never put out too many games but they put out a few really great games that are great to this day yeah and they have kind of they all have staying power turned around the entire business model today like 13 years later, but I'm happy with Steam. I think that some of the, I think that some of the the cultural issues that I hear with Steam are that at this point it's monolithic, and I mean there is competition to Steam. You know, you've got Epic and you've got GOG and you've got Itch uh, and other places. If you if you're a small developer and you want to publish a game, but Steam takes a pretty hefty cut. It's something like 30% of the sale price, and that's a lot just to host your game. And they don't really do anything other than have give you a place to host your game and maybe it shows up in a sale, right? I think those are the criticisms of Steam. Yeah. So, but that being said, yeah, I really like Steam as well. I understand why people might not like Steam. And I understand why people might have issues with their business model. And I think that in, I think Epic tried to like, I don't know, slam Steam by saying that they're, that the cut that they take is too high and so they lowered their prices, and so in kind, Steam lowered the cut that they take depending on sales. And so, like, if you have a game that sells really well, they take less of a cut. And I think that that kind of competition is probably good because if we're still talking about companies that, I mean, this is all part of capitalism, right? If we're assuming a free market in this in this regard, right, then you would want to be competitive. And what I was thinking about when you were talking earlier is that. It's really important to remember that a lot of games are made with the express purpose of making money. Yes. And that, that that's okay. It may be. But you have to understand why games are the way they are 
in that respect. And that's why I really think that a lot, when I talk about streaming and stuff, the kind of games I gravitate toward mostly, just as a, at a base level, are like indie games that don't have all of the garbage fluff to try and make it into a AAA game because it allows people to innovate in a way that they're not pressured, right? So I, I drink I drink a lot of wine. I have a wine sommelier friend. And when we I would help him like, teach classes about wine. And we would talk about how like really low tier wine like doesn't mean that it's bad. You know, just because it's like a $5 bottle of wine and it tastes like sugary garbage. Well, guess what? They wouldn't make a $5 sugary garbage wine if people weren't buying it right? So if you see these games and you're like, well, I really don't like that Battlefront 2 had all of this, these issues surrounding it. Well, just don't fucking buy Battlefront, right? Like vote with your wallet in that regard. Show them that they can't do those kind of things. Yes, absolutely. But I do also kind of think critical about with many of these online distributors of games, and things that surround games is that they have started to include a lot of ways to microtransact a lot, which I f fear pulls in a lot of people that do not know how to handle money, and yeah. especially teenagers, into spending too much money on games and things like hats and Team Fortress, just one example. You can also spend money on skins in League of Legends to for for things that are kind of useless. This kind of reminds me of the cell phone ringtones you could buy in the 90s that would kind of lure you into these contracts that you wouldn't come out of. Now that it's, it's just not contracts, you just get addicted to it. Yeah, so I know, I know someone who, when they were younger, got really into Counter-Strike and uh, went as far as taking someone's credit card that didn't belong to them and secretly using it to make very small transactions to buy keys to open chests to get skins in Counter-Strike. Yeah, that's one of the biggest things where I was like, ooh, you've got to turn it down, Bob. This is gambling for kids. Yeah. And well, I think that it also brings, and we're, I mean, we're way off topic from Kimberly Swift at this point, and that's okay, but I think that it really brings in moral quandaries about I mean, there are moral quandaries to advertising to children in general. Yes. Like, I mean, we could just even start with that. Should you advertise to children? And like for a long time, that wasn't really, you know, as big as it is now. But then to to put addicting, I mean, there is a, there is a question about putting these kind of addicting mechanisms in games that require them to pay money. I think it's one thing to make a game really fun and addicting to play, right? Yeah. You want a fun game that's, that's fun and you, you want to play it again. But when that fun derives from spending further money, I think maybe is where I draw a line. Absolutely. And addiction to spending small amounts of money to make some virtual kind of progress also isn't even fun. It's just the, the addiction itself and you kind of lose control over it. And right. I'm talking about that that is actual addiction that can take control of your life is, I think, something that is done too rarely. But let's take a break at that point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, even though I think it's a very important topic to talk about more. Sure. So we talked about where Kimberly Slift went. She, she's um, at EA now. Let's talk about a few of the other developers. And that's actually quite easy. They are all still at Valve. They really the company, Dave Kircher, um, for example, the guy that came up with the portal idea. He's still at Valve. He developed all of the games that came out. He even was part of Half-Life Alyx. 
So they basically hired an entire team of developers that made them portal and they stuck with them ever since. That's awesome. Which I think says a lot about the corporate culture of Valve because I guess in a field like that that is growing as fast as it is as, as the video game industry and with that amount of experience, you could just leave if you didn't like it and they didn't. Right. Well, that I think one thing that might keep people at Valve, and again, I'm not speaking for these people, of course. is when you... When you enter a culture that is that, we'll call it wholesome, right? I mean, I'm sure every company has their problems. But when you enter a culture that jives with what you're, with what you want, and and then you see the rest of the industry, you know, these big, gigantic companies where you're just a number, then why would you ever leave? And who knows? Maybe Gaben has just dirt on them, and he will rule them out. <laughs> <laughs> Father Gaben has had knows all. Yeah, the, the, the Gaben Cathedral has been built. Let's praise Father Gaben. He can see your Steam library. He knows what you downloaded. <laughs> yes, all those weird waifu games. <laughs> them. Okay, so the Portal franchise, as we talked about, it keeps going. Portal 2 comes out in 2011. It's a huge hit. It adds multiplayer to it, which is super cool because now you can have you have basically have two players that both have two portals and to kind of have to support each other to solve the puzzles. It's a lot of fun. The main villain shows up again, Glados, but there's like a huge story. They made it's 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 a lot funnier. They kind of made a whole. I think they hired some comedian for some extra characters that did some funny lines, and it it, it has this whole set of janky things that you I. Th- is, are just supposed to be goofy, I guess, but it works. Yeah, it definitely seems more over the top in how it tries to be funny because I would say that the humor in the first portal is much more subtle. And in the second game, it is like in your face, there it is. That doesn't mean it isn't funny. It's, yeah. it's just funny in a different way. The, jo- the joke in Portal 1 is how obnoxious the, uh, the GLaDOS is, the AI, the evil AI. It's just like you, because GLaDOS says everything in complete sincerity because she's a robot. And in Portal 2, it's it's much more in your face. That's right. They also hired, I can't remember the, the actor's name, but it was the guy who played uh, Jonah Jameson in the Spider-Man movies to do Cave Johnson. And you get to mess with his side of things for a while. And boy, I really liked, I really liked his lines and his character. Yeah, you kind of dig underneath the Aperture Science um, compound and come into the old testing facilities from the 50s and 60s. And it does some some weird little vague references to the times. Okay, so this is about it, the story of Portal, but let's get into some... some I have like one big fun fact about the um, development of it, which is that during the development of Portal, they try to give versions of the game to playtesters, of course, as you do, um, to figure out if what they were creating actually made sense and actually was fun. But they didn't just give it to the playtesters and waited for some sheet of paper that said, this is fun because I like portals on walls. But they actually sat down with them in rooms, playing the game to actually see their feelings while they were experiencing the game. And that is something Kimberly in one interview describes as essential to figure out if your game is good. Because... I don't know if you know this, but I, th- I think we like we both we we made a game once, and yeah. once you're 
inside of a game as deep, you kind of lose contrast of what is good and what isn't, what makes sense right now. You kind of you can't see it because you're inside of it. Right. You gotta see others do it. And you don't you, you don't just need the reviews because reviews of people are so vague and can be interpreted in different ways because communication is just difficult. You gotta feel them, you gotta see them actually. And by seeing the other person's feelings, you actually are able to differentiate your own and figure out if the game is fun and what's good about the game. And that's what they did a lot. And I think that's a very interesting part of how they were able to make Portal work. Because I think a lot about what a good game Portal is. And it's actually one of the great games of our time. Um, I would agree. It has such lasting power. You can pick it up and play it, and it's just as good as it was the first time. Yeah. And then there was another thing I thought about was that Kimberly in the beginning said that they felt too young to kind of found their own company. And I was like, okay, she was like 25 when that came out. Mm-hmm. How old were other huge game developers when their games came out? And I just looked up two, just to get a perspective. Mm-hmm. I looked up Takashi Tezuka. He was kind of the co-creator of Super Mario Brothers. Mm-hmm. And he was 25 when Super Mario Brothers came out. And I looked up the creator of Pac-Man, which is Toru Iwatani. So both of these guys are also in the Museum of Modern Arts, just as Portal is. And he was also 25 when Pac-Man came out. Huh. Um, How interesting. Which makes a lot of sense because you, I, th- I think it's common to also kind of an open myth, but it's also kind of right that you, at, at about that time in your life, you have like the most drive and the most time and the most capacity to pump out great works. It doesn't mean that you can't do it later in your life, but that's often when you start after puberty to reach your first peak. I'm in my 30s now, and um, finding the motivation to do the stuff that I did in my 20s is difficult. Oh, aging Tyler feels old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying I'm like old, and I can still, yeah. I can still do is that. Things, but, is hey, that know. gray in your hair? Are you? It is. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes my fiance will point to my hair, and she'll go, "Oh, look, another gray hair." And that's it. That's where the conversation ends. I go, "Okay." <laughs> But that's just that's part of life, right? And you, as you get older, you get more responsibilities, and you know, people have kids, people get married, people move. It's a unique time, and I can see how those people made really great things with it. Yeah. But also to add to her point, man, I'm in my 30s, and I would be nervous to probably start a company. Absolutely, it's a huge. I think that's normal. And um, it's okay to be afraid of big decisions as long as you make a decision, and even if it's against it, it's fine. You just got to move on. Yeah. They apparently made the right decision. It seems so. I have a question. I have a question for you. When was the first time you played Portal? Um, oh, I actually have a funny story about that. The first time I played Portal is when it came out because it was a huge Half-Life fanboy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I played everything that Valve produced. And I have a better story about Portal 2 because it came out in 2011 in Germany as well. And I pre-ordered it. And I got it one, and it actually was sent to me two days before it was released by some kind of mistake. I don't know. And I went over to my best friend because I bought it for him. And I went over to him. We sat down on his couch in his smelly, filthy student room, (laughs) put it in, we installed it, and we played through it the entire night. And it was a great experience. That's really awesome. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, Portal is one of the big experiences of my video game life. 
that I will always treasure. When did you play Port for the first time? Uh, so I, okay, so I was in high school. Um, I'm a couple years older than you. Um, I was in high school. It was nearing the end of high school, either my junior year or my senior year. And I had this guy who lived near me. His name was Steve. And he and I used to ride the same bus. And we would talk about video games. And he would just talk and talk and talk about Half-Life and how Half-Life was the coolest thing. And then he started talking about Portal. And one day he said, well, why don't I lend you the orange box? And I was like, oh, okay, right, whatever. And he said, you got to play Portal, you got to play Portal. And I was like, oh, okay. It wasn't really my cup of tea at the time. Um, I was pretty well sucked into WoW at that point. Oh, yeah. That was like the height of my <laughs> Warcraft addiction. Oh, my gosh. And But I remember I just got a 360. Um, I was working like a part-time job, and I had managed to scrape up enough money to buy my own 360, which got bricked later, but that's a story for another day. And I, I played Portal and was immediately addicted. And I was like, this is the fucking coolest thing I've ever played. Like, I thought it was so cool. And then that got me into playing um, Half-Life and Half-Life 2. And I remember Half-Life 2 had this, like, cut. And I remember going to him and being like, well, when are they going to make another one? What? And he's like, oh, well, they're supposed to put out another episode soon. Oh, <laughs> like, no. it never came, right? Oh, like, it never God. came. So, oh, it's such a bad place to end on, too. There's some Reddit post where some guy says, like, so I finished episode two. Um, how, how do I get the, the next episode? Well, anybody's <laughs> like, who's, who's going to tell him? <laughs> so, <laughs> how, yeah. do we, how do we put this, son? <laughs> <laughs> who's going to break it to <laughs> him? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with me. I really liked hearing that story. It's really nice to hear when things go well for people just getting out of the industry. And I don't know what those kind of opportunities are like today, but if you are one of those people who is trying to make it, you know, know that it can happen. Yes. Let's talk about sources real quick. My biggest source was she had a big talk at the Independent Games Summit of 2007. It was in the year Portal released, actually. And then Kimberly Swift, she was kind of um, considered the lead developer, even though that is inherently untrue because the entire team was important. And she even states that a few times, sometimes she even seems a bit annoyed that people are pointing that out all the time. I also used the 30 Under 30 segment of Forbes magazine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Nuclear Monkey Software has its own homepage that is still up, where you can even download the game in a backular drop if you want to for free. There's even the soundtrack of it. You can get development notes and even see some screenshots of the older games. And there was a big interview with Eurogamer. That was quite informative. Well, thank you. And um, as always, I appreciate the sources. Anyone you want to thank before we finish up? Let's thank Quad Laser, as always, because we use his music. And let's thank our community, because they yeah. are pretty cool. Yeah, and I, I think that I would do this and enjoy this, even if it was just us talking to the void. But hearing that people actually listen to these and learn things and have fun is... It makes it worth doing. Oh, and so. thanks to Darko because they help us maintain the uploadedness of this podcast. <laughs> the uploadedness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, we host this two places right now, uh, codexrex.com and Spotify, but um, I'm slowly adding more places that you can find this. So if there is another place that you would like this to be, um, hit me up. Thanks for hanging out. And thanks for listening to me. Yeah, of course. Thank you for writing this. It was much appreciated, my man. Thank you. All right, bye, everybody. Bye.